Well, I dressed up for Halloween, wore a tie, and I'm a pastor today, so <laughs> I did that for Dan Spolstra. There you go, Dan. I'm tired today. I don't know about you, but I am tired. I've been tired a lot lately. In fact, feels like I've been tired most of my adult life. I got to tell you, people around me seem tired. Teachers seem tired. Doctors and nurses seem tired. Moms and dads are tired. People who replace tires on your car at the store are tired. Even coffee shop baristas who should be wired on caffeine, they're tired too. Everybody's tired. You've got, everybody's tired. Why are we tired? Is it a physical problem? Maybe it is. Maybe it's mold in the walls, radon from your basement, cholesterol is clogging your arteries. Maybe it's COVID. But you know, people were tired before COVID came around, so it's probably not COVID. We're just tired. Maybe people need more essential oils, like frankincense, lavender, or ganja oil. If you know what ganja oil is, maybe, good, it's marijuana. You don't want to. <laughs> maybe, maybe we all need to take more vitamins, get on better diets. Maybe it's too much technology, too much news, not enough walking in the woods. Or maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe our tiredness isn't necessarily physical. It's, first of all, a soul tiredness. We're exhausted on the inside. And that bleeds into the physical. Turn to Psalm 32. I want to use Psalm 32 as a platform to get us prepared for Matthew. Because I believe the context of Matthew has a lot to do with what Psalm 32 is talking about. It has a very interesting take on the question of tiredness and why are we so weary. And here's what Psalm 32 says. Blessed is the one, means happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, meaning when I tried to hide my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Boy, talk about tired. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him, because you are a hiding place. For me. So Psalm 32's take seems to make it that the residual effects of sin is what's making us tired. It's what's causing our bones to creak and our groaning to last in the night. It's guilt and shame. 
It's like sin gives the demons from hell ammunition to chase us down with fear, anxiety, judgment from others. Boy, do we let that wear us down. Personal guilt, deep internal shame, they haunt us like ghosts on Halloween. They tell us we are broken, and because we're broken, we'll never be satisfied with ourselves, and when we're not satisfied with ourselves, we're never satisfied with other people. They'll always let us down. So we do all we can to keep the voices of condemnation at bay, but to no avail. I hear them all the time. I usually hear them in an English voice. That's how demons talk. Chris, what kind of dad are you letting your kids watch so much TV? Not teaching them enough about Jesus. Letting them laze around the house. When are you going to have a good long talk with them and set them straight? Don't you see, as a father, you're a failure. Chris, what kind of husband are you? When is the last time you bought your wife some flowers? Wrote her a poem. Fixed the kitchen sink. Do you even listen to her, you rotten, no-good slacker? Chris, what kind of pastor are you? Not praying enough, not visiting people enough, arguing on social media too much, not meeting with enough people during the day, not having good enough sermons. Other pastors would have had that building built years ago, and they like wearing ties. (laughs) And then I hear these demons in my own voice. Chris, what kind of Christian are you? Not reading your Bible as you ought. Not having enough people over to share the gospel. Not being pure and holy and blameless and perfect. You're so imperfect. And of course, not eating enough broccoli at dinner. That one always gets me. (laughs) But on and on the accusations go. Shame builds. Guilt condemns, and your, your shoulders slump. Fear mounts and failure swells like the waters of a flash flood. So you have to say, swim, swim, and if you don't, you'll drown, and it gets tired. Well, today, Jesus is going to address this chronic condition that I think has been plaguing us since time began. This is why we're so tired. It is why he calls the gospel good news. Because the gospel has come to give us rest and peace and joy. And don't mind those lights. We're still figuring them out. If you have any problems, talk to John. But it kind of gets the effect. When I used that ink demonic voice, the lights went on. That scared me. So Jesus is going to talk about you receiving the gospel. It's an invitation. Either you can receive it and find rest, or reject it and find ruin. So the title of our message today is Ruin and Rest. And the ticket is being offered to you. What do you do with the invitation? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. As we continue in our study, we're going to begin in verse 20 and go to verse 30. He just got done sending the disciples out two by two, and here's the response. Verse 20, Jesus began 
to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. NIV says, for it was your pleasure to do so. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father or the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the context, as I said, Jesus just sent his disciples two by two. They are preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. He sent them out to Galilee, Jerusalem, to the houses of the Jews, to the tribes of Israel. Luke, which is a corresponding account, talks about these invitations. So the disciples go out and they come back. And here's how Jesus sent them and here's how they came back. Jesus says, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. So when you accept the message, you you receive the person. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. So rejection of the message is rejection of the person. Anyone who rejects me is rejecting God. So if I reject the person, I'm also rejecting the Father who sent me. And then it says, so they went out, and this is what they gave the gospel. It's an invitation. You can either accept it or reject it. Very simple. It's not hard. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us. When we use your name, they do what we say. So, Luke says the invitation could either be accepted or rejected. And to even spice it up a bit, Jesus gave the disciples power. I mean, real power. They could do amazing things, probably raise people who are lame or give sight to the blind. They could heal demon-possessed people. Amazing thing. And the purpose was to validate the invitation. So so they said, follow me because we have the kingdom of God if you accept this. And here, let me show you, and the Spirit worked in amazing ways. 
even to the point where the demons obeyed him. You would think if people saw actual miracles, the whole countryside would turn to Jesus. I sometimes feel the same way. I wish we could see amazing healings here in this town. It would be incredible. I wish my sermons, when I spoke, the walls would like reverberate and dust would come down on you. And they'd say, whoa, now that guy can preach. And people would come flooding to this church. That'd be exciting, but not so fast. Even after the disciples came back joyful, many they preached to did not respond. That's why Jesus gave us verse 20. They came back, and Jesus began to denounce the city where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Wow. The disciples came back joyful, but Jesus derides them. This word denounce means he insults them. He condemns them. Jesus wouldn't be angry, would he, at people? For rejecting his message. He's nice, isn't he? Says he denounced them. I mean, in a harsh manner. Who is he denouncing? So if you look at verse 25, it tells us who the people are that did not accept it. Verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, hidden these things. That means the, the beauty of the glory of the kingdom of God have were hidden from who? The wise and understanding. So those who rejected the message were arrogant. They were the wise and the learned. And those who were worldly. Why do people reject the message? Jesus says because they already think they have enough. They know everything they need to know. They're self-sufficient. They can stand on their own two feet. They've been doing religion long enough to earn them enough credits with God. So they're done. Why do they need Jesus? Why do they need more teaching? They know better. They're the free thinkers of our time. They don't need to be told by anyone what to think because they have it all figured out themselves. They're the wise. They're the learned. And they, according to verse 20, have no reason to repent. So you could say their non-repentance leads to ruin, or ruin in the case of they're never satisfied. Life is wearisome, and it makes them miserable. So first of all, what does it mean to repent? Repenting means a change of heart. I'm going down the highway, I see my sign, I miss my exit, I'm broken in the heart, I turn my car around and go the other way. Repentance means I realize what God wants me to do and I've been missing it and I know I've been missing it and I change. I go the other way. That's all repentance means. But it's a change of heart. It's the moment you realize you've been wrong and you change because you are broken on the inside. But this group has a hardness towards it. They don't care. They're stubborn. The learned are rarely broken because they think they already know what they need to know. They already arrived. I, I've been thinking through this. When does a person arrive? When does the soul congeal? When does the position of a person's spiritual condition solidify? 
Is it after a certain age? If I turn 21, have I arrived? Or is it after I get a few degrees from college? You know, with a, you know, even like a nice MAB, MB or BS, PhD, then I've arrived. See, it's certified. When does someone turn from a flexible soul into a piece of iron rock? I think it's uh, it's contributed by a law where I think I've done enough to deserve his favor. But I think it's also pride in your life experiences. I've been there. I've done that. I don't need to learn anymore. The problem with this heart condition is that they forget how serious it is to come before a holy God when you're not prepared. God's standard is higher than you could ever imagine. I think the older a person gets, the less they fear His holiness, the less they fear God. The younger a person is, the more they believe in His majesty, that He really is a king. Age and familiarity with religion. It erodes wonder. When I, when I first was saved, I mean, when I first was saved, I would read the Word of God and tremble. It was weird. I don't tremble as much as I used to. The more I tremble, the less I worry about the opinions of others and less I am impressed by my own knowledge. But we need to tremble for this reason, because God's justice never changes. He says something very strange here in Tyre and Sidon. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. So these are two cities that received the miracles, and they rejected them. And then he says, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Tyre and Sidon were cities in the Old Testament that were judged, condemned. Some were destroyed. And then he says, and woe to you, Capernaum. And Capernaum's where Jesus did most of his stuff, where he called the disciples, where he healed the blind. Woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be dropped down to Hades. This has the idea of Isaiah, where Lucifer wanted to exalt himself into the heavens. Wonder raised his throne above the Most High God, and he was cast down even to the lowest depths of hell. Why? Because Jesus says, for if those same mighty works were done in you that had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. The reason why is because they were given the light and they didn't appreciate it. You could say it like this. The justice of God is exact. And if I don't appreciate his justice, I'm going to have to pay for it exactly. Erwin Lutzer put it like this. If I don't accept the gospel, if I don't believe the gospel, and I am not covered by the righteousness of Christ, I have to pay my sin back to him exactly. So, if I have ever used the Lord's name in vain, I wish I would have used it one last time because it would be exactly punished for the exact amount of times I used it. But then it also takes into account what I have received with regards to the gospel. If I received the gospel and rejected it, that is also going to be added to my punishment. That's what Hebrews 2, 2 and 3 is all about, saying if the Old Testament was ignored, don't you love these lights? They're fantastic. 
It's like early Christmas. So just look at it that way. Early Christmas. I'm looking, and it goes on, and people are going like that. Now, listen to me, because you will be judged. Listen. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Half kidding. But here's what Hebrews 2 says. Hebrews 2 says, For if they didn't escape punishment, meaning the Old Testament people didn't escape punishment, how shall you escape punishment if you've been given the message of salvation? So the message of Jesus is much heavier than the message of the Old Testament. And if you ignore it and reject it, it will be attributed to you. That's what this means. Capernaum saw Jesus heal, and they didn't repent. And they're going to be judged worse than Sodom. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. I was uh, talking to a person the other day about my postings on Facebook. I don't know what you feel about Facebook. Facebook's a way to communicate. One of the problems is I'm a communicator. I like to communicate. Sometimes I'll communicate about different things. Sometimes I'll even communicate about how I think about politics. And some people get mad about it. I try not to say too much. I try to be fair. So I did this thing, and I, I, this one, one week I tried to post something about pop culture. I posted about the song Jesse's Girl. Many of you know the song Jesse's Girl. If you don't know the song Jesse's Girl, you really do know the song Jesse's Girl. You just don't want to admit it. So Jesse's Girl, because I heard it in Arby's. I was listening to it, and I was just saying, oh, I remember Jesse's Girl. I posted about Jesse's Girl. Then I posted a political opinion about something. And then I posted three days in a row what I would call heavy theology about the cross of Christ. And I wanted to see which ones got the most hits. What did people look to the most? Because I often get criticized. I don't post much about Jesus. After that week, the, the posting about Jesse's girl got like five times more hits than anything else. And then politics, because politics make people angry, and what makes you angry, you read. And then the gospel. But people don't read the gospel because you know why? I've heard that before. Should be just the opposite. Like, wow, the cross. I can't. Have you gotten over the cross? Don't get over the cross. It is the most important message. But we are so filtered to see as a politics. We think politics are going to save us. They won't. They won't. There's another group who accepted his message. And he talks about him in verse 25. Listen to what it says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Even though a lot of people may not listen, may not repent, there will be those who do. And how does Jesus describe people who accept the message freely? He says they're like little children. Children not in numerical age, but in character of soul. Being called a child is not an impressive thing back then. It was, wasn't as sentimental as it is now. Like we kind of do all things for children. Back then, children wanted to be, they're not important. So this is not a compliment. 
Because children are not too impressive. And that's exactly the point. They are those who just have simple faith and trust in the Father. And this pleases him. That's what verse 26 is all about. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, and such was your pleasure that pleased you to find people who simply trusted you. That makes God happy. You understand that. If you're a parent, you know exactly what that's about. Your kid wants you to help him untie a shoe, and then you try to help him untie a shoe, and they get mad at you. I can do it. All right, fine. But then I can untie your shoe. Thanks, Dad. So much more pleasant. They are those who have simple faith. They trust Jesus without the critical spirit. And this pleases God. When I was in second grade, I went to a school. My teacher's name was Sister Nancy. And I remember in second grade, Sister Nancy is one of those teachers that had a thick carpet for kids. And she put two chairs up at the front for show and tell. I don't know what day it was, but I can remember we always had show and tell once a week where one kid would bring something in to show and tell. We'd all get on the carpet, we'd all be on our knees, and then the teacher would have the kids show what they brought. I can remember a kid brought a painted turtle, you know, a turtle with a beautiful shell. And the kids all wanted to see it. You show the turtle, and second grade kids go, oh, oh, guy, hold it. And they had the little claws on that turtle, and the mouth was like that, you know, and they go, oh, the mouth. You know, kids will laugh at the small, oh, look at the tail. But if you showed that to an adult, they'd say, yeah, I've seen a turtle. It's a turtle. Kids are like, can I touch the turtle? Adults are like, I've seen a hundred turtles. <laughs> I've caught bigger turtles. Children, when they read the Word of God, they, they draw in and they say, you know what this says? This says, he died for my sin. All of them. Adults say, yeah, I know that. I've known that my whole life. I've been going to church for years. Children relish the word of God. They believe it. Like they believe it. Adults know better. And they think they, they need to help him. They need to help God with the salvation process. Kids just trust him. I will help God by dressing nicely, wearing a tie, and being more serious. See, because I'll help him with my attitude. Did you know that the problem with trying to work your salvation, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. There's a lot of very angry and dull Christians. Children want to trust their dad, and that brings them pleasure, and it is only his pleasure where we will find rest. And I'll talk about that in a second. But before we go there, Jesus says something in verse 27 that's incredibly profound. Incredibly profound. I'm going to call this the anointing and all things. Here's what 27 says, and I'm going to walk you through this because this is the theology behind what Jesus is saying about acceptance and rejection and why some people are alive and why some people are more bitter than a piece of wood. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what's happening here is I'm going to call this the understanding of the anointing, but I'm going to walk you through the process to make it easier. So let's backtrack. The first thing we've learned today is that God sends out an invitation to either ruin or rest. He sends it out through messengers. They give the gospel. We call that the good news. It's good news because I can find rest. You don't have to be weary anymore and tired out. The second thing we learned is people either accept it or reject it. Very simple. It's not hard to understand. Third thing, after a person makes their choice, God will respond to them. His response, I'm going to call the anointing. How you receive it or reject it, he responds. God calls it the anointing. Or another word for the anointing is the sending of his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God himself is sent to those who receive the message. Go to 1 John chapter 1 or chapter 2. 1 John is before Revelation at the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 2, and I just want to look at verse 27. I find this fascinating. First John 2, 27. But the anointing that you received from him, you received it because you accepted the gospel. The anointing you received from him abides in you. I mean, it lives, it dwells. Makes a home in you. That's what abiding is. Sets up a kitchen table, invites you to dinner, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Huh. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So if we apply this to what he says in Matthew, it's the same thing he says in Matthew 27. The anointing is the moment when a person sees Jesus and when he sees Jesus as the Son of the Father and then the Son will reveal the Father in that person who sees Jesus as the exact representation of the Father. So in a way, Jesus says here, no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if I accept the Gospel... Because I see in Jesus the expression of the Father, I accept him, he will pour out in me the Spirit which now helps me see the Father through the Son. And it's only for those that accept him, and in the revealing, it becomes a personal knowing of God and not just a knowledge of God. It's a personal knowing. I get to know the Father. For instance, I could tell you all about my dad. I have often. I could tell you things about my you guys know my dad's a salesman. You know my dad got fired. You've known something. But I know my dad. Like I know him. Or my two sons. I know Joseph and Giovanni. Some of you know Joseph works at Chick-fil-A and Giovanni plays football. But you don't really know them. Like know them. I will have talks with my son Joe late at night about life. There's a difference between a knowledge of a person and a knowing of a person. And when I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, oh, I know God. 
I know him. Some people think they know God because they've read about him. But you only know Jesus, only know God through the Son. Those so, this is what happens. Those who have rejected Jesus have rejected the knowledge of the Father. Because they've rejected Jesus, they will never truly know the Father. That's what verse 25 is all about. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise in understanding. What things? What things are hidden? I think two things in specific. The holiness of God and the grace of God. This first group will never understand true humility because they will never be in fear of his holiness. They won't see themselves rightly because they have never seen him right. They don't fear him. They really don't. They also will not be grateful because they will lean upon their own work in their understanding. So when you put these two things together, it just leads to pride. They are proud of themselves and their abilities. And it says in the scripture, God resists the proud. He hides from them. He hides from them. So here's a question. If a person doesn't really have humility and they don't operate in gratitude, what happens to them when they learn things? They get puffed up. They feel superior. They love to let others know how much they know, and they know more. So wisdom and knowledge before the anointing spoils a person. Wisdom and knowledge after the anointing enhances a person because they see more of the beauty and the holiness and wonder of God and they also understand how much they've been given in grace. And they're wonderful people to be around, which leads to the child. When they accept, they have what's called an illuminated soul. They're inside awake. When they accept the invitation of God, Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, reveals to them the Father's holiness and his grace, or his kindness. Paul calls this, the time a person has eyes to see. Jesus calls it when a person has ears to hear. Wonder is awakened and holiness is understood. It is as if, even if they don't quite have all the knowledge, they just know. So when somebody who might be wise and more understanding but don't know God, try to say things and tell them things and teach them things, the child will just say, that's wrong and I know it is. I don't know how to explain it, but I know it. The older a person gets, the more knowledge and understanding they have. After they're illuminated, the more what we would call godly wisdom and insight they have. But there's something about the moment you accept Jesus, you just start knowing things. And when you hear lies, you know it. You know everything. There is a softness and a wonder of each new day because you know the Father and you trust him. There's a realization that I have not arrived and I'm just beginning to see and every day is a new day. Children remain humble. So you can ask the question to yourself, are you proud or a child? Proud people always argue. They're easily insulted. They think they know better. Children are soft-hearted, flexible, curious in their learning. Proud people think they deserve deference. Children think they're here to serve. Proud people don't heed God's warnings, but you, they want you to heed their advice. 
Do you fear God more than the opinions of man, or do you fear, or do you want man to fear you and your opinions? Which leads to what Jesus is going to say now for children. He's going to give them a yoke of a different kind. It's kind of like Wizard of Oz, a horse of a different color. Jesus says a yoke of a different kind. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. He describes it in 28 through 30. And he's talking to children. Come to me. All you who are tired out, who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, it's easy. And my burden, oh man, it's light. Like a feather. So we have to understand a few things. What does he mean? What is a yoke? What does he mean? A yoke, though, is a farming term. It's a tool that hooks up the animal or a person to the plow to plow the field. There's single yokes for one horse or one person, and there's double yokes, even triple yokes, but a double yoke has two places for two animals. The idea here is if you hook up with Jesus on his yoke, my yoke, you and him are yoked together and pulled the burden, and it becomes easy as pie with Jesus because he's really strong. If I do it on my own, I get tired out. I can't do it. But what does that even mean? Do we go walk around with a wooden yoke around our neck all the time and a cross on the other side? What does that mean? For my studies, the idea of yoke is a metaphor for the demands, obligations, and expectations that drive you every day. Rules and commands you are a slave to. They're wearing you out. I believe there are two kind of yokes that you can be put under. The first one is a man-made yoke, and it's the yoke of judgment. It's the yoke of judgment. It's a yoke that the law imposes, that it sets up. If you don't do this, then this. If you aren't fulfilling this, then this. Expectations. Obligations. I'm always failing. Under this yoke, truthfully, I, when I live under this yoke, the way you can tell you live under this yoke, I feel like every day I'm a failure. Like everything I do stinks. And usually it's either somebody has rules and expectations I think I need to follow. Usually they're my own rules and expectations or some of them as bad theology. Let me show you something really interesting. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Chronicles. Chronicles chapter 10. Old Testament. So Solomon was king. Solomon died and Solomon had a son Rehoboam. 2 Chronicles. Solomon was the king of peace. His kingdom was incredible. But his son wanted to do it better. And then he had a slave named, or a servant named Jeroboam that also wanted to take over. And so 2 Chronicles 10. 2 Chronicles 10. This to me is exactly what the judgment of yoke is like. So verse 10 of chapter 10 of 2 Chronicles. So his, their dad died and now they have to rule the kingdom. 2 Chronicles 10.10. 10. And the young man who had grown up with him said, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father, 
made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Because they wanted it lighter. Because Solomon sometimes was a hard driver. Thus shall you say to them, No, my little finger's thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's the way the heart of man works before the anointing. We are always wanting to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to be more perfect. Our expectations grow higher and higher. You think Solomon was tough? I'm going to be tougher. We whip ourselves with scorpion's tails. When man is control, in control, judgment. Guilt, shame strikes like scorpions. I believe this is what makes people weary. The religious person thinks they must be perfect to keep God happy. And other people need to be perfect along with them. And all they have is criticism and discontent. That's the yoke of judgment. Can you be perfect? Nobody can be perfect. Have you ever messed up? It's funny how we will judge people for something they messed up at, and how dare you lie to me or something like that. Then you, Have you ever sinned? Well, yeah, but that lie, so you're not perfect either. No one's perfect. No one is. But legalists set up down these laws that they themselves think they can keep, and they expect everybody else to keep them. And if somebody doesn't keep them, they get very angry, hostile, and even rude. In other words, this yoke of judgment is slavery. You can never do enough, and that enough never ends. And some of you are carrying that yoke right now. And you know it. Makes you weary. Here, here's how you can tell. Guilt will be used like a bludgeon to keep people in check. Sometimes we bludgeon ourselves with our own personal expectations. And we live in a day and age when people can't forgive themselves, is what we say. Why can't we forgive ourselves? Didn't Jesus forgive us? Yeah, but I'm more of a judge than... You're bigger judge than Jesus? He forgave you. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Whose expectations are you ruled by? The yoke of the law is designed by that person themselves and has put themselves in slavery. We feel bad now for feeling bad. We get angry for getting angry. We get anxious about our anxiety. I'm not thin enough, not smart enough. I don't diet enough. I'm not working enough. I'm too lazy. I get depressed over my depression. I'm a failure, but according to who? My law. Oh, it's killing me. It's killing you. No wonder people are tired. They're being whipped with scorpion tails at their own choosing. But there's another yoke, and I call it the yoke of kindness. God is kind. He's the kind of dad where his mercies are new every morning, according to Lamentations. Psalm 103 says, He remembers, he remembers we are made of dust. And he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Wow. Psalm 18 says, he delights in us. 
That word is so much sweeter in a sense than love. Yeah, he loves me. No, 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 no. He delights in me. I often can remember the first time I brought Ginger home from the hospital. And I could see her little face in the back mirror in her little car seat. And I'd be like, I can't believe she's mine. That's delight. Zephaniah 3 says, He rejoices over us with singing. He's kind. We are not whipped with tails of scorpions. Oh no. We are refreshed by the wings of doves. Peace. Perfect peace. And let us talk even about justice. So Jesus is saying, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida and Capernaum. Because your sins, because you haven't repented, they're stacking up. And I am going to keep you account for everything you've done wrong. But on this side, his son took everything I've done wrong and he laid it on the cross and I am no longer condemned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. The whips have been tossed aside because they've already been used in the backs of Christ. In the back of Christ. But if I do sin, he is faithful to remember that they have been paid in full. So if he already paid them in full, he doesn't need to pay for them again. That's called kindness. He's a kind, kind man. Have you ever met a kind man? Like a really kind man? John Bagley is a kind man. Doug Kruger is a kind man. Aaron Armstrong is a kind man. Dan Spolstra is a kind man. They're the kind of people that will do anything for you, no questions asked. When I sin against God and I ask him to forgive me, no questions asked. So which one, which yoke you want? And it all depends on repentance. Admitting that you've sinned. When you admit you sin, you run to a kind father who's already paid that debt. Or are you too smart? I already know. I've already arrived. Who? No wonder you're so tired and miserable all the 